Welcome to Disability Dialogues, a series of conversations with leaders and activists from around the world who are advancing the rights of persons with disabilities. In this series, we'll hear from people who are playing a significant role in advancing the disability rights agenda in the global system, in their regions, and at home in their own countries. We will explore success stories as well as challenges. I am your host, Gerard Quinn, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Today, in our very first podcast, I'm delighted to lead off the series by interviewing Gopal Mitra. Gopal coordinates the implementation of the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy. Gopal, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Gerard, and looking forward to our conversation. Just by way of brief background, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is a human rights treaty ratified by almost every state in the world. The UN system, which reaches into most corners of the world, has not ratified the treaty simply because it lacks the legal standing to do so. That left a very big gap. Since 2019, this gap is now filled by the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy. This effectively commits the UN system to voluntarily comply with the treaty. Agencies like the World Health Organization have well-established work to advance disability rights, but now the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy provides a common framework to link together all of the work of the UN agencies across the world. This can accelerate the implementation of the rights of persons with disabilities, assisting states in their own reform work. Gopal, I'd like to start interviews by asking our guests to say something about themselves, your earlier life, why and how you came to occupy the post that you now currently hold. Thank you, Gerard. I am from India, though for the last 10 years I've been working in the UN. So I grew up in a small town in India, in the eastern part of India, in a district called Darjeeling that makes tea. And from, the, from my childhood, I was attracted to nature and so on. My parents uh, are simple people. And they, my mother, she was a kind of a refugee from the partition of India. And mm-hmm. so uh, from my father's side. So issues of migration, issues of resettlement, issues of the hardships that uh, people face. That was something uh, we saw in our childhood. And you realize later that those uh, experiences leave a mark on you. At that point, you don't realize, but when you work on things, you realize it. So I started my professional career in the army, in the military, got injured in an explosion and became blind. So when I was undergoing my rehabilitation, I went to an employment officer who was supposed to guide persons with disabilities to employment, to livelihood. And then I told him my experience that in the military, I have led people, I have managed complex operations, logistics, and so on. And I I told him that, look, now I'm blind, but I want to still continue working. What do you think are possible avenues that I can try, given my background, given my experience? He told me, Gopal, you are newly blind. So I would really like you to like to be honest with you Uh, so that you don't get disillusioned, there will be setbacks. So I would recommend 
that uh, you take up basket weaving or caning chairs. So that was the options that he suggested to me. And I felt very sorry. I don't know whether I had to feel sorry for him or sorry for me. So then I joined the local disability group in my town. And then I came to know of people and started working. And that's how I slowly got into disability work. But before that, I would like to tell an interesting thing. In my college, I used to volunteer with an adventure club. And I was not a person with disability at that time. And that adventure club annually organized an adventure camp for young people with disabilities. So that was my first exposure to the capacities, to what persons with disabilities were capable of that gave me a glimpse. So when I became blind, I think that experience also helped me through my rehabilitation, the mental adjustment, the physical adjustments, and so on. So that's how I joined and slowly found myself in the U.S. You have now ended up, Gopal, coordinating the implementation of the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the strategy? Whose idea was it? And how was it put into place? You see, the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy was launched in June 2019, but it was a result of several years of work before that by many people. But two important uh, aspects, I think, which led to the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy is the momentum that was generated or that has been generated through the implementation of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals, which has explicit references to persons with disabilities across several goals and targets. And uh, as the UN was also going through reforms the disability movement, organizations of persons with disabilities, the International Disability Alliance. And I would also like to mention the special rapporteur on the rights of persons with disabilities started highlighting this to the UN leadership. As well, there was also a call from those of us working within the system. And I think the Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General took the suggestions extremely positively and they were personally committed to see that the UN is fit for purpose on disability inclusion. So in 2018, the Secretary General commissioned an institutional review on disability inclusion for the whole of the UN. The review found that though the UN system, the United Nations system has been working on disability inclusion for a long time, uh, there there is no shared framework which could strengthen coordination. Also, no particular UN agency or entity was responsible for it. Given the cross-cutting nature of disability inclusion and that it applies to both programmatic aspects as well as internal operations, it was suggested that along the lines of the gender system-wide action plan, a system-wide action plan is also developed to strengthen the UN's work on disability inclusion. Thank you very much, Gopal. So the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy looks very technical. It's a rather long document. Could you break it down into its component parts for the benefit of our listeners? Of course. Let me mention some of the core or key aspects. First of all, the strategy, it consists of a policy and an accountability framework. The policy outlines the overall vision, the high-level commitment of the United Nations towards disability inclusion and inclusion of persons with disabilities. 
And the accountability framework is where the teeth of the strategy lies. The strategy covers all the three pillars of the UN's work, development, human rights, peace, and security. The rationale is that as the UN, when we are talking about including persons with disabilities in our programs, we also have to make the UN itself an inclusive workplace for persons with disabilities, right? So the accountability framework, as I said, is where the teeth of the strategy lies. Now let me come to the indicators. What does the strategy measures? So strategy measures the UN's performance under four core areas. The first core area is leadership, strategic planning, and management. So what it does is that it has benchmarks on whether the leadership of the UN is championing disability inclusion because leadership support is extremely important to accelerate progress on a cross-cutting area like disability inclusion. The second core area of the the accountability framework is inclusiveness. It's very fundamental. It has indicators on whether the UN is consulting organizations of persons with disabilities or not, whether our physical and digital infrastructure and all that we are doing, are we considering accessibility or not? Another important area that it covers is procurement, whether the goods and services, products that the UN is procuring, is it considering accessibility and inclusion? And also whether reasonable accommodation which is a poor anti-discrimination measure, whether the UN system is providing that or not. So the third core area of the strategy is programming. So it has indicators on whether our programs and projects are disability inclusive or not. It's not only disability specific projects, right? It's our mainstream projects, whether country program documents, whether the evaluations that we undertake are integrating the disability inclusion in a meaningful manner or not. And the last core area is organizational culture. Under that, the strategy measures employment of persons with disabilities within the UN system. It measures whether our communications, whether they are representing persons with disabilities in a meaningful manner or not, whether the UN has put in place measures to build knowledge, capacity, and awareness of all its staff on disability inclusion or not. So I know it's very early days, but you're very closely involved in monitoring the implementation of the framework across the UN system. I'm wondering, can you tell us some of the highlights of that analysis so far? Are there any surprises? Do you, for example, have any sort of league table? And if so, who's winning the league table within the UN system at the moment? That's a great question, Dira. So as I said, the UN agencies, entities, and country teams they have been reporting annually on the strategy. So from 2019 to 2021, the performance has improved from 16% to 30%. You can say nearly it's 100% progress. But at the same time, uh, there are two aspects. After three years, the UN system is still not meeting 70% of the benchmarks on disability inclusion that has been established by the strategy. So on disability inclusion as the UN system, we have started from a very low base, a base of 16% of indicators that are being met. The strategy has provided a framework, a roadmap to make progress from 16 to 30%, nearly 100%. And despite 
the disruptions caused by COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, there is a long way to go. That is the overall picture. Within um, the UN system, we see that agencies, funds, and programs, they are doing better than others. Peacekeeping or peace operations as a group, I think it's still disability inclusion remains an emerging area of work. Yes, we know the agencies who we traditionally think of uh, when we talk about disability inclusion, World Health Organization, International Labor Organization, Office of the High Commission for Human Rights, UNICEF, UNDP. These organizations have further stepped up their work on disability inclusion. But what is equally interesting is that because of the implementation of the strategy across the UN system, a lot of UN agencies, which we do not automatically think would implement or integrate disability inclusion have started working on the area. I'm talking about the food and agricultural organization. They have stepped up their work so much. And just on a very interesting note, last week we got a message from the UN Office of Outer Space and they want to implement the strategy. They say they have a lot of programs on raising awareness of people on space programs and they want to make all those disability inclusive, you see. So what I'm trying to say is that many agencies who we generally don't think of naturally when we talk about disability inclusion have started considering accessibility and inclusion of persons with disabilities due to the strategy. Gopal, you must, as a former military man, be somewhat disappointed by the low take-up so far in peacekeeping and peacebuilding. Hopefully we can see progress in the next period ahead. You mentioned the area of space. I noticed that six or seven months ago, NASA was looking for people with disabilities for their next intake of training astronauts, which is quite fantastic. Just by way of personal experience, I used to work in the European Commission on disability issues. And when we changed our policy in the mid-1990s, the very first application was with respect to the design of cabs for tractors on farms. As it turns out, the need for more ergonomic designs was incredibly important because a lot of farmers have accidents on the farm and are disabled as a result. So right now, Gopal, there are many crises facing the world. We have too many armed conflicts, Ukraine, Yemen, Congo, to name but a few. And we're experiencing climate change, which will likely lead to mass displacements of people. And you and your family have experienced that many decades ago. With the UN system playing such important roles in the protection of millions affected by crises, Would you say that the disability inclusion strategy has been beginning to make a difference in the system's preparedness and responses? There are two aspects, two sides, if I may say, that we see emerging from the strategy. One is humanitarian agencies. We see their performance of humanitarian agencies higher than the system average. Uh, The big humanitarian agencies, uh, World Food Programme, High Commissioner for Refugees, UNICEF, and so on, IOM, International Organization for Migration, they have really stepped up. We see 
that the humanitarian needs overview, the humanitarian response plans, and the post-disaster needs assessments, and so on, are increasingly factoring in inclusion of persons with disabilities. Most agencies have invested in capacity, which is critical to accelerate progress. In terms of the peace operations, I totally see uh, why you mentioned that uh, it's it's a little discouraging. At the same time, what I would mention is that we see a lot of interest and enthusiasm among peace operations to undertake this work. In 2019, when the reporting was done, 12 peace operations reported. Now, in 2021, 18 peace operations uh, reported. So there is an 50% increase in the number of peace operations that are uh, implementing and reporting on the strategy. There are already several good practices that are emerging. For example, in Somalia, the peace operation is working closely with the disability department, with organizations of persons with disabilities, building capacity, and so on. In Iraq, we know the peace operation work closely with organizations of persons with disabilities to ensure that during the last elections, persons with disabilities, it was accessible for persons with disabilities. Like this, we have several good practices that are emerging of peace operations engaging on disability inclusion, and we expect this to further improve over the coming years. Thank you, Gopal. We in the Special Rapporteurs team, as you know, have a profound interest in armed conflict and disability. And for our most recent report on the laws of war and disability, we conducted many regional consultations around the world, bringing together military authorities with civil society organizations. What we discovered was a huge appetite for these kinds of conversations and dialogues. And we aim to follow through with similar regional consultations in the whole area of peace building and disability. From your experience, do you see a similar appetite for all sides to reach out in the peacekeeping apparatus to persons with disabilities? Yes, indeed, we see that. And when we reach out to our colleagues working in these peace operations, and they're working under very challenging situations, right? We see definitely an appetite and interest to take this forward. What we have to also match is the capacity. So we are trying to organize how to build the capacity, the technical knowledge, the awareness and that is required. One of the aspects about the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy that is of a particular interest to me and our team is the positive role of public procurement to actually, as it were, purchase the right kind of justice and equity for people with disabilities. Could you say a word or two about how that's progressing within the UN system? It's a very interesting area that came out of the first reporting on the strategy showed that procurement or consideration of disability inclusion in the procurement was one of the lowest performing indicators, right? At the same time, Across many agencies, entities, our colleagues, there was the realization that, look, when we are talking about financial crunch, we are talking about a difficult financial climate. Funding on disability inclusion may be difficult. But what colleagues realized is that what we are procuring, that money is already there. So if we are able to factor in disability inclusion and accessibility in that, we could really move the needle. 
on inclusion. So the UN Procure Network developed in 2020 the first guidelines on disability inclusive procurement. And now for the last two years, the guidelines are being implemented and we are seeing some good action. We have seen UN agencies incorporating accessibility criteria into their tenders, requests for proposals, and so on. We see also some work starting on how we can procure from disability-inclusive suppliers, right? We have seen that the UN Global Marketplace website or the portal where the tenders which are used for procurement, they have been made more accessible and so on. So we are seeing more and more examples of UN agencies putting more attention on uh, procuring, for example, assistive devices. Of course, that is specific disability-related uh, equipment or product. Gopal, it's pretty obvious that the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy is incredibly important in reaching out to the furthest tentacles of the United Nations in-country. So how can ordinary people interact with their own in-country UN team to guide the inclusion strategy? And more importantly, how can they help you to assess compliance? That's a great question, Jira. See, the strategy is technically an internal strategy for the UN, right? But it has many components which makes the UN or put the UN in a better place, the more stronger place to engage with people on disability inclusion. So uh, we see the strategy providing that space to engage more with people, particularly persons with disabilities and their representative organization on a range of issues that the UN works on. That is one part. Second is, I just mentioned procurement. The strategy also provides the space or the framework for those who engage with the UN to discuss or to factor in or to consider disability inclusion in a much more concrete manner. For example, all the vendors of the UN, all those companies who supply to the UN, all the people who build our software, the, the digital portals and so on. I'll just give you an example. At the country level, the cooperation framework is the guiding document. It's the agreement between the UN and the government on how the UN will support or engage with the government on what priorities. We see persons with disabilities and organizations of persons with disabilities being increasingly consulted in the development of that cooperation framework. And the strategy provides a framework for that because that is a specific indicator in the UN disability inclusion strategy. So just a practical follow-through question. If the UN in-country teams report to you, do they typically involve people with disabilities in putting together their own reports? And how do they reach out to people with disabilities on the ground in the process? See, not to the reporting, but the strategy and to even approach the benchmark of the strategy, the country team has to do at least one consultation with persons with disabilities. For example, in Fiji, the UN country team now has an MOU with the Pacific Disability Forum, right? So we are increasingly seeing these partnerships, both formal and informal, and countries now are proactively reaching out to organizations of 
local and national organizations of persons with disabilities. From our side, what we have done last year is we have developed, along with the International Disability Alliance and their partners in collaboration with them, system-wide guidelines on consulting persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. Kupal, you mentioned electronic accessibility, web accessibility, etc. Can you tell us how well is the UN system doing at the moment and what remains to be done in this regard? So what we are trying to do in the strategy is in the first years, provide that basic guidance or establish those guidelines. So Department of Global Communications has issued accessibility guidelines for all UN websites. Of course, it's a journey, right? So new websites which are being developed, or new digital portals, web platforms are increasing. I mean, web accessibility is being considered. I'll tell you one interesting thing. The UN at the country level is now implementing the business operations strategy. And the business operations strategy includes common services which the countries are implementing on physical accessibility, digital accessibility, and inclusive human resource services. And there is a good uptake of that. So in the coming years, we also see this improvement continuing and further accelerating. Well, this is wonderful, Gopal. I think we've only scratched the surface today. Well, I think we've done enough to give people a sense of what the line of travel is and what the dynamic of change is within the UN system. So, Gopal, thank you so much. You've given up your time so generously this afternoon, and I'm sure many people around the world will directly benefit from this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gerard. It was a pleasure, as always, to speak with you. Thank you so much. Listeners, you can follow Gopal on Twitter at Gopal Mitra. 2030. We have a short reading list accompanying this podcast and every podcast, which you will find at srdisability.org. My Twitter handle is at srdisability. Do get in touch with us with ideas about topics or potential interviewees. Well, that's it for this episode of Disability Dialogues. The executive producer is Hernan Bonomo. Original sound design and editing is by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kusberg from the Bull Media Podcast Agency. My name is Gerard Quinn, and until the next episode, goodbye.